It's, uh, it's very important, as we've said all week, um, that everybody continues to follow the Lord. There's only one reason that I try to preach, and that's to bring glory to God. It brings Him glory uh, when people repent and they are saved. It brings Him glory when we speak the truth that He's placed on our hearts. But everything that, uh, that I hope to accomplish or to do is for God's glory. I've said this multiple times this week, but Jesus was the radiance of the glory of God and the express image of His person. If you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Jesus shows us in a way we can understand who God is. And that is still in my heart tonight. I tried to preach last night about the transformational power of Jesus Christ. And tonight I want to try to preach about the mind of Christ. And I'll read a few different passages, but I want to take the text from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I didn't plan on this, but I think I'm going to read the whole chapter to give us a context and also just teaching. And I'm not able to preach without His help, so I want you to pray, continue to pray for me and for the service. I'm just going to read the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing, he says, I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect or complete, yet not the wisdom of this world or of the princes of this world that come to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God has ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of um, the world knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. But God has revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God." For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now, we have received, this is very important, we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That 16th verse is the text on my heart. We have the mind of Christ. When God saves you, He changes you. And if you're not careful, that change 
can become ineffectual and invisible to those around you. If you're not careful, once God saves you, it can become as if you were never saved. I'm talking about your lifestyle and the way you live and whether you have peace in this world. There's a reason that Paul wrote what I preached last night, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I talked last night about the transformational power of the presence of God, which happens situationally and is not permanent. It's when God pours out His grace on us, and for just a few moments or a few days maybe, we shine with this resplendent heavenly light. And it doesn't last forever because of this broken tent we live in. But tonight it's on my heart to talk to you about sanctification, which does require action on your part. It does require effort on your part. It requires awareness on your part. It requires intentional focus and activity on your part. Sure, it takes God's grace, but He doesn't sanctify anyone who doesn't want to be sanctified. We should say first what that word means in case you don't know. Very simply, the word sanctify means to set apart. All through the Old Testament, when we see something being sanctified, it is being set apart or put over here away from the things that it was used to, away from the familiar life, away from all of everything that it did. It's being set apart for a special usage. And all through the Old Testament, when God had the priest sanctify things for use in His tabernacle, there was a ceremonial approach that happened to show to the people watching that that thing had been set apart for the glory of God. When I say for the glory of God, I mean for use in bringing attention to Him. All of those items in the tabernacle in the wilderness that were sanctified for use by the priest, they had one purpose, and that was to point to God. Today, we don't have priests in the Christian church. We don't have um, a temple. We don't have ritual sacrifice because Jesus was the last sacrifice and He made atonement and it's, and it's done. He is the last sacrifice for all time. That's not necessary Anymore, But we still have a pattern which has been given to us by God, which is that God, once He saves somebody, wants to set them apart for His service. We've heard a few testimonies this week where people talk about the way God changes you when He saves you. And I think this sister said, uh, He changes your want to. He does. But I've seen a whole lot of people who have good testimonies and seem to actually be saved have their want-to reversed. They get their old want-to back. And this is where you have to be careful. You have to be cautious. This message tonight, I'll go ahead and tell you, maybe it won't be exciting, I'm not maybe going to run around a bunch, and it's going to require your mind and your heart. I want you to listen. I'm not trying to be exciting tonight. I'm trying to preach to you the truth God has put in my heart. And very simply... If you want me to just summarize this whole message before I even preach it. When God saves you, you have a responsibility. Not only to Him, but to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't get to do whatever you want and live however you want anymore. Period. And if you try to, there will be consequences that are heartbreaking. Not only will they hurt you, but they'll hurt those around you. 
And there is mercy in God. He has abundant mercy that is beyond anything I can comprehend. But I also want you to recognize there is the law of the harvest and whatever you reap, you will sow. If you sow to your flesh, things of the flesh, you'll reap destruction. That goes for the saved people as well. If you sow to the Spirit, things of the Spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. And he's talking not just about life in heaven someday, he's talking about actually living this life on earth now. I'm telling you tonight, if you can listen, and if the Holy Spirit will put these words in your heart, the way to have a happy life. First, come to know God. When He forgives your sins and gives you peace, sell out to Him. One of the hardest things for me to see, and one of the most overwhelming things, is all of the people who say they're Christians, who the only time they ever surrendered to God was the moment He saved them, and they never gave their life to Him again. It's not my job to judge in their hearts whether they're saved. I don't know that. Part of me says and thinks of scriptures like, by the fruit you'll know them. Can a bad tree bring forth good fruit? And I've seen people who... I want to be clear about this. I've known too many people who talk about some emotional experience they had 30 years ago, and never after that point did they ever do anything in the service of the Lord. They never had a burden for any lost person. They never acted like they cared. They never got broken when people were hurting. I want you to know, I really wonder if that person really got what they think they got when they had that emotional experience 20 or 30 years ago. And if you're like that, I'm not being mean or judging you. I don't know your hearts. In fact, I don't know you all that well. But if you had some experience when you were younger that you think God saved you and He hasn't changed your life, you need to really examine whether you know Him. Because when God saves you, He begins transforming you. We have the mind of Christ. When God saves you, He puts His Spirit in you. And initially, he puts the mind, the attitude, the perspective, the focus, the desires of Jesus in you. And from that very moment when he saves you, if you're trained, if you're taught, if you're discipled, this is why discipling a person is so important. Amen. That's why the Great Commission says, go into all the world and um, teach them all things that I've shown you, baptize them and disciple them. I'm paraphrasing it, but that's what it's saying. It's not just get people saved. It is preach the gospel so they might be saved. Baptize them as an outward expression of them being sanctified for God's use. And then disciple them. And so here's what I'm telling you. When God saves you, some of you are new Christians. You've been recently saved. When God saves you initially, He he stirs up the inside of you and everything's exciting and everything is wonderful and everything feels good and you're happy all the time and every time you come to church you want to thank the Lord. It can continue down that path or you can kind of go the other direction and become more and more indifferent. Because the initial excitement settles down. I almost said wears off. I don't think it wears off, but it settles down. If any of you are happily married or have been happily married, and I've had a lot of... Married people tell me this who who seem very happy. They say that initial being in love phase 
kind of settles down into something more stable, and more lasting, and more unselfish. It doesn't go away completely. It doesn't mean it doesn't come back from time to time. And it's the same with us. When God first saves us, there's such an innocence and an excitement and a desire to just do everything for the Lord. And one of two things usually happens with people. Either they have no uh, more seasoned Christian to instruct them and, and tell them the kind of things I'm telling you tonight. Listen, the excitement's not always going to be there. You're not always going to feel as good as you feel right now. And when that happens, don't worry about it. Because what happened to you when God saved you, if it's real, is still going to be there. And the feelings and the excitement waxes and wanes. It goes and it comes. But that deep abiding peace of God remains. What our job is, is in the meantime, when the feelings and excitement kind of go up and down, up and down and up and down, we should sort of, no matter what, be in the middle of, I'm for the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't care what's going on around me. I don't care whether I feel excited today or not. Listen, what God did for you when He saved you, if you're really saved, is the best thing that's ever happened to you. And He deserves your life and He deserves your worship whether you feel excited that day or not. Doesn't He? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know this in your heart. The problem is the enemy subtly, just like he did with Eve, can come in and distract us and make us forget our privilege and our responsibility to the Lord. We have the mind of Christ. I want to read another passage from Philippians. And I sort of roughly quoted from this the other night, but I want to read this whole passage from Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. This helps us understand when Paul says we have the mind of Christ, he's now explaining and expanding what that means, but it also comes with an instruction. And the instruction tells us that the mind of Christ that is given to us, it doesn't just remain there without any effort on our part. It has to be cultivated, it has to be exercised, and it has to be worked for. Let this mind be in you. This is Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now he explains what he means. Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took on him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." He says earlier in this chapter, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each other esteem the other one better than themselves. Look every man onto his brother's needs, basically, not onto the needs of himself first. You know what the mind of Christ is? It is a complete lack of self-focus. I told you the other night, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. 
The difference is subtle, but you understand it's not having a low opinion of yourself. It is having a less frequent opinion of yourself. It's not thinking you're bad and terrible. It's just not thinking about yourself that much at all. Because you're too focused on being thankful for who God is, what He's done, and then focused on the people around you and what maybe they need. Jesus Christ is our perfect example of what it means to be a Christian. If you're a man, He's our example of what it means to be a man. If you're a father, He is our example of what it should mean to be a a husband and even a father. Even though He had no earthly children of His own. He exemplified those traits and those qualities. And especially all of us who know the Lord, He has given us an example of how we should live this life. You don't have to wonder. And at the very heart of His nature is, even though He was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, He made Himself of no reputation and took upon Himself the form of a servant. That is so contrary to human nature. A lot of pagan cultures, they believe that the way you live in the afterlife is through your reputation. There's something in old um, Norse mythology called Weregild that uh, basically what you do in life echoes in eternity. And so these men try to live these most valiant lives of battle and and taking over other tribes and doing all these grand heroic acts. And they hope that by doing so, people will continue to talk about the great deeds they did in life after death and through the conversation about them, their name will live on. Listen, I want you to know that not only when you die, maybe people will remember you, maybe they won't. But that doesn't really matter because God has put inside of you a spirit that is going to either live on in heaven or be tortured in hell. If you know God, you don't need to worry about your reputation. I want to explain what I mean. I don't mean that you shouldn't care about having a good reputation. You should live in such a way... What did uh, the brothers say? Fornication and uncleanness and lust and all these things. Let it not be once named among you as becometh God's children. There are things that if you're saved, you just shouldn't do. You shouldn't go out partying. You shouldn't go out getting drunk. You shouldn't fool around with women if you're married. You're a man, you shouldn't fool around with other women. Or look at them in inappropriate ways. And you know what I'm talking about if you're a man. And women, I'm not a woman, but you all know what you deal with. There are things that we just, we just shouldn't do. We just shouldn't. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be self-righteous. I'm just telling you, when God saves you, you're bought with a price. And the price of your salvation is the death of the Son of God. I mean, your opportunity to have peace with God and life everlasting came at the cost of the blood of Jesus being poured out. I hear people say things like, well, all it takes is one drop of Jesus' blood. No, it took His death. And it took His death for every... Even if only one person would have been saved, it took His death. Because His death had to happen to lift the curse. When I say you shouldn't worry about your reputation, here's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you shouldn't commit scandalous sins. You shouldn't. Absolutely not. 
What I'm saying is, if you try to love the Lord the best of your ability, and try to love your brothers and sisters to the best of your ability, and people get mad at you anyway, and they gossip about you anyway, and they talk about you anyway, you know what? It doesn't matter. The Lord showed me a while back, my reputation doesn't save anybody. Only the power of God does. And I have to do what God has put in my heart to do. I have to preach the gospel wherever He sends me to preach it, whether somebody thinks I should be there or not. I have to love people. I have the opportunity to love people. This is part of being having the mind of Christ. He made Himself of no reputation. I wonder, were we really okay with that? In this dog-eat-dog world, I used to... I remember Zig Ziglar. I don't know if some of you have heard of him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he said, uh, we say dog-eat-dog, but that hurts my dog's feelings. Because he knows that people are worse than dogs are. It's true. I mean, we say that, but people are the ones who do all the bad stuff to each other through our own selfishness and our own pride. And that's why Paul says, don't let anything in the church be done through strife or vainglory. Let me put that in modern language. Don't let anything be done through selfish ambition or empty pride. Let me be very clear, especially for some of the newer Christians. How do you know you should do something in a church service? And if you're, if you're saved and you observe things going on in church, how do you know if it's of God? I want to give you a, a litmus test. First of all, if it's really of God, it will draw attention to God. I haven't seen that here this week, but I've gone to a lot of churches where people get up and talk just to bring attention to themselves. And I'm telling you, this is not exciting, but I'm telling you this as a warning. Watch out for that in your own hearts, but also in this church. And if somebody comes in here and draws a bunch of attention to themselves, it's okay for you as a church member, as a saved person, to sit back and say, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable with what's going on. That doesn't seem genuine. You're allowed to feel that way. You just have to be careful not to have a condescending attitude toward them and a judgmental attitude. It's okay for you to recognize that their actions don't line up with what Scripture teaches when it says, let all prophesy, let all speak of the goodness of God. That will draw attention to God. Yes. Here's the other way on a more simple level that you can know if God wants you to do something. It's not just a thought that pops in your head. It is a nudge in your spirit. Yes. <laughs> I've seen too many preachers get up and... Uh, <laughs> Try to preach about some thought that popped in their head, and it's not preaching. Because there's no revelation, there's no power, there's no pushing from the Spirit. It's just a thought that popped in their head, and they chase it around the whole time like a, like a rabbit trail. That's not how it should be. And I've seen people get up and testify the same way. When God moves your spirit, it's okay to speak of His goodness. But it's not your job to just say whatever pops in your head. I hope that makes sense. I'm not suggesting you quench the Spirit. You shouldn't. Quench not the Spirit. But we also need to follow the Spirit. Amen. Jesus made Himself of no reputation, took on Himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself. And became obedient unto death. What I read last night... Paul said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus' obedience led him to death. And this is not popular. It's not easy to hear. It doesn't make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. But our obedience to God leads us to death as well. Paul said, I die daily. When God saves you and He puts in you His Spirit, and initially you know what it feels like to have the mind of Christ, you can either continue to yield to the operation of the Spirit inside of you and have His mind develop more and more inside of you, or you can go the other direction, as I preached earlier, which is to allow your heart to get hard and to turn away and to go back to your own way of doing things, serving your own flesh. Jesus said that the way to eternal life is through a narrow road. And he he said, earnestly strive to enter in. For the way is narrow that leads to life. And even after you're saved, the way of God is narrow. I know people who say, I don't want to be saved because uh, I won't be able to have fun anymore. They don't understand what fun is. They don't. He humbled himself. If you really want to see God work in your life, if you really want to see Him move, if you really want to see lost people you know saved, if you want to see this church prosper and grow and impact the community, you have to humble yourself in the sight of God. So much of the Christian life is the grace of God. In fact, I would say everything is. But sometimes, through talking about grace, we neglect to talk about duty. And once God saves you, you have an obligation, and a privilege, but an obligation to humble yourself in His sight. To invite Him, and ask Him, and beg Him to begin changing your life into a life He would be pleased with. I got to preach to a bunch of kids at the Do-Re-Mi school, the music camp, uh, last week. And part of what I told them is when God saves you, His Spirit will start to let you know how He wants you to change. And the things you used to do with your friends might not be okay for you anymore. When He lets you know that, change. The language you used to use, and I I think probably you realize that here, but the language you used to use, you might have to let go of some of it. You might have to change your vocabulary. Say, well, where do you get that out of the Bible? Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed to the day of redemption. Why does it matter how we talk and what we say? Because it grieves God's Spirit who has been put inside of you to live. Notice a lot of people think that just means that you can't use certain four-letter words. But he says, don't let any corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. He says, what you speak should lift people up. Do you know that's talking about just being harsh for no reason and unkind for no reason? You shouldn't do that. And that's something I've, I'm guilty of a lot. 
just speaking with kind of a you know vinegar on your tongue instead of sweetness and it's not necessary i want to read you something while we're on that that subject this is from a man named watchman nee if we realize before i read this 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 will this will bring and tie into the rest of the message when God saves you, He puts His Spirit in you, and initially you know what it's like to have the mind of Christ because you start to see the world differently, and that starts a lifelong battle of the child of God. That's why Paul said, I'll paraphrase it, the things I desire to do are the things I don't do, and the things that I want to do are the things I can't do. He says, I see then that there's a law warring in my members that when I would do good, evil is present with me. He wasn't saying that as an excuse. He was just saying, no matter how hard I try, I can never make this tent anything holy. It's not an excuse. It's just a statement of truth. You still have an obligation to try to serve the Lord and a privilege. But listen on this subject, because I think it applies to all Christians. Let us remember to never accept any thought or feeling lightly. If we wish to walk after the Spirit, we must be watchful in all points, searching especially the source of every one of our notions and sensations. Just because you feel something doesn't mean it's from God. Just because an idea pops in your head doesn't mean it's from God. Sometimes Satan provokes us to harden our spirit. Our spirit can become stiff, unyielding, narrow, and selfish. Such a spirit cannot work with God, nor can it do His will. And so, a believer will abandon his love toward men. He'll shed every delicate, sympathetic, tender-hearted feeling toward others. Since he has lost the generosity of the Lord and has drawn a circle around himself, how can the Holy Spirit ever use him mightily? There's a great danger to God's people, to His sincere Christians who are really on the path and trying to serve the Lord. And that danger is some type of self-inflated uh, pride. That's why Paul writes very clearly, um, if one of your brothers falls, lift him up in love. Oh, there's a time for church discipline and there's a time to exercise that against a hardened person who claims to be a Christian is not living like one. But first, you lift him up in love. He says those of you who are spiritual to pray for the ones who aren't as spiritual. Jesus, again, he's our example. He gave us the example of how we should feel toward sinners. A woman who was caught in the act of adultery and all the wonderful religious people wanted to just destroy her on the spot. Brought her to Jesus. Look what she did. Jesus' approach was so interesting. He didn't question whether or not she should be punished. He drew attention because he knew their hearts. And their hearts were judgmental and cold and hard. And they looked at her as something dirty and worse than them. Jesus knew this. And so he wrote whatever he wrote in the dirt and he said, the one of you who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they all dropped their stones one by one and walked away. And Jesus looked at the woman and this is how we should feel. Even when we have to exercise church discipline or judgment against a, a person who's wrong, this is how we should feel toward them. He said, woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. 
That's how we should feel. We shouldn't have a hard spirit. If Christians fail to see, this is more of Brother Nee, if Christians fail to see that such an attitude is distinctly from the enemy and not from themselves, they will never be freed from that spirit of hatred. And still other times, Satan induces the spirit of God's people to become narrow and confined. He seduces these Christians into separating themselves from others by drawing lines of demarcation. There are times, listen, you, you need to recognize this as well, that thoughts will come into your mind that the brothers around you are just... They just are so beneath you spiritually or so behind or so much on milk and you're on meat that you need to just separate away from them because it's too frustrating to even be around them. You can't have even real conversations about the Lord with them. Be careful. Be careful. Because sometimes separating away like that is the exact way that the enemy wants to isolate you and they begin injecting false doctrines into your mind to where you're no longer useful in God's service at all. Here's the truth. In a Lord's house, there will always be members who are more advanced spiritually and other members who aren't. It's just how it is. But sometimes some of the members who don't seem as advanced spiritually might be more loving than the ones who seem so spiritually wise. Sometimes. I want to read just a little bit more. And this is where it really cuts into my heart. Sometimes the words are correct that we use, but the tone is wrong. To assure victory, we need to watch even the sound of our speech. Immediately, an evil spirit may touch our spirit and our voice loses its softness. A harsh, hard, and shrill utterance does not spring from the Holy Spirit. It simply exhibits the fact that one who speaks has been poisoned already by Satan. I'm not talking about not having passion or intensity. I'm talking about the difference when fleshly anger wells up in a person who thinks they're speaking on God's behalf and it's nothing more than their angry flesh. There have been times in my life that what I thought was righteous indignation in the moment, I really thought it was, was nothing more than my intemperate flesh, my impatience, my personality. (laughs) There was a time, I don't know, maybe ten years ago or more, I was a young preacher and I was having a discussion which turned into a pretty heated argument with a man who thought I was a false prophet. And uh, that's the closest I ever came to punching a grown man in the face as an adult. I mean, that's how heated I felt inside. As close as I've come to being in a fight as an adult. And my mom happened to be there and she came outside and, and just set her hand on my arm. And I felt all of this rage that I thought was righteous indignation, it just melted and calmed. And I realized I'm just about to punch a man in the face for disagreeing with me. That wasn't of God. Even though in the moment that intensity felt like it was. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. How do we usually speak? Are we able to refer to others without any tinge of condemnation? Here's where it becomes a heart matter. 
you know when you talk about your brother or sister who has some specific problem, or maybe they're really not that good of a church member, honestly, or maybe they're not dependable, or maybe uh, they're chronically late, or maybe, I don't know, you just pick the thing that bugs you. And you know in your heart whether you feel this, your nose curls up at them when you think about it. You know whether you feel bitterness in your heart toward them or not. Are you able to speak without a tinge of condemnation? Do you feel that like condemnation in your heart toward them when you think? Do you feel angry about it? Or do you feel a sense of love and sorrow toward them that, man, sister, brother, I want you to get better. I want you to have a happier life. You're missing out. Is it motivated by love or frustration? There's a difference. Our words may in fact be true, but lurking behind those words of truth could be a spirit of criticism, condemnation, wrath, or jealousy. Whereas we should speak the truth in love, if our spirit is pure and gentle, then are we able to voice the truth. Now should the spirit of condemning be within us? We most assuredly have sinned. Who is he that condemns? Jesus, even who's risen from the dead. It's not our job to condemn. It's our job to stand for the truth. It's our job to preach. It's our job when it's necessary to point out a person's sins. That happens sometimes, especially if you're a pastor. It's hard. I had to bring up my own earthly father on charges and have him excluded from church. There's times that you have to stand. But you know what? When I did that, my heart was broken. And it wasn't with any kind of bitterness or self-elated pride. I had no room for that because it was so sad. That's the difference. When you have to stand against sin and take a stand and, 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 and stand for the truth, and maybe to some people it seems hard, you know how your heart feels. And if your heart feels broken, that's okay. If your heart feels self-inflated and critical, that's not okay. That's the difference. What is hidden behind things is what matters the most. How many times we sin while doing something for God or men, for darkly hidden away is an unfaithful, unwilling, or grudging spirit. We must keep our spirit sweet and soft. It must be pure and clean. Whatsoever things are true and pure, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. You know, James wrote, writes to us, he says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Don't they come even from your own inward desires? Your own warring spirits? You lust and desire to have? You ask to obtain that you may consume it in your lusts? He says, Oh, adulterers and adulteresses. And then he says, Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is talking to saved people. Once you're saved, <laughs> and you start feeling hardness towards your brother or sister, or a critical attitude, or, or, or cold in your spirit, draw near to God. You know, some of the most important prayers I think I've prayed are those prayers that feel like it did nothing. It's kind of like the attempted prayer before the real prayer happens because I don't know if you never get through that initial 
frustrating, hard part of trying to get in touch with the Lord, you wouldn't experience the second part of actually being in touch with Him. There have been so many times I got down or sometimes I didn't even feel like bowing. I'm just walking or something and praying, Lord, I just can't seem to get in touch with You. Help me. Forgive me. And start naming all the things I can think of and I don't feel any better. I come back the next day and pray the same thing. And sometime, by God's grace, He lifts that burden of sin and restores His presence in my life, in my walk with Him. That's what He wants for us. Brother Paul wrote in the second letter of the Corinthians, he said, We that are in this tent, this tabernacle, groan. Not that we should be unclothed, In other words, not that we should die, but so that we should be clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of immortality. That death might be swallowed up of life. That should be the motivation of all of the actions of the child of God. Not just to give God glory, but Lord, I want you to consume me with life. This body is decaying, dying, it's going to go back to the dirt. But while we're here in this earth, oh, my spirit groans within me that the life of God might swallow up this distracting, messed up body. People wouldn't even see that and would see His love instead. That's what I want. That's what He wants for His children. A lot of you knew my uncle Russell Dunn. Um, well, some of you did. And last time I was out here a couple of years ago, I actually mentioned him. He had just died when I was out here before, just uh, a week or two before. And it's been a little over two years now. And I had the privilege of being his pastor for a while. And there was a period of time, I'm just being honest, where um, I felt like he wasn't that dependable. He didn't show up at church as often as I thought he should. And it frustrated me. And it frustrated some of the other church members, and we would talk about it. Sometimes he would um, go play music on Saturday night, and he was careful that he, he didn't play in bars, he didn't go where people were drinking because he didn't feel like he should uh, as one of God's children. But sometimes he'd be out late enough that uh, he just... He, he was sick on Sunday, just exhausted. He would work all week, sometimes 60 hours, sometimes more. He traveled a lot on different jobs. He was a machine builder. And honestly, on Sundays, a lot of times it was like he just, it was the only day of the week that he was sick. And it frustrated me. Because I didn't know what was going on in his body or in his heart. I didn't know a brain tumor was growing that was going to kill him. And I didn't know the people he was impacting because I was looking at him with limited vision and carnal eyes that weren't malicious, but they still couldn't see the whole picture. I want you to know when I preached his funeral, I preached two funeral services in the graveside service in two days. I don't know, except by the God's grace that I was able to. He had like 80 co-workers come to that. Tons of co-workers came to the funeral home. He had people from around the world that he impacted. He even had somebody from a hotel send his wife a card when he died. From a hotel he stayed in. And I sat back 
part of that service and watched and said, I've never seen anybody. I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never seen anyone have this kind of an impact. Some of the people who showed up were those guys he played music with on Saturday night and came and cried like his brothers. And Lord used that to show me a powerful lesson that hasn't left me. You don't know what people are going through. And you don't really know how God is using them. And we get in our mind these ideas about what it means to be faithful or what it means to be dependable or what we think God wants somebody to be doing. And it's good to be a faithful church member, come regularly and all that kind of stuff. But my point is, God was using him in a way that was invisible to me to impact people that I didn't even know. And I guess that's the thought I want to leave you with as I'm trying to talk about sanctification tonight and trying to talk about us having the mind of Christ and our role in trying to be more like Jesus would be pleased with is I'm trying to talk about that. The most important thing is for our spirits to be soft and our attitude toward our brothers and sisters to be gentle. Even when we have to exercise judgment or even when we have to call them out on something they're wrong about, it should be with love, with gentleness. Not with frustration, not with criticism, not with disdain. None of those kind of ideas. Love, gentleness, maybe brokenness. Maybe some fire, but it should be from a place of love. I realized when we lost my uncle, as I said, that he, he impacted people as a man, as just a regular man that he could have never impacted in preacher clothes or in a church because these people didn't go to church. He couldn't have impacted them if he felt like, oh, I, gotta, I do this, 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 I got to do these things that are expected of me. He went where these people were that he could love. And it had a great impact. That's the thought I want to leave you with as, as I try to preach this message that I, I hope, maybe you'll have to go home and think about it some. But I hope it's a message of instruction that will help you understand some of your privilege and responsibility as a child of God and as a church member if you've been baptized. Let everything be done through love. Not through self-pride. Not through any self-desire. Love. Let everyone esteem his brother higher than himself.